with those. If you pull out your message notes from the bulletin along with a pen or pencil to fill in some blanks and jot down some notes, uh, we're going to dive into God's Word together as we continue our series, Seek and Save. Seek and Save. Now, let me ask you, I'm, I'm pretty curious this morning, did any of you do anything that literally changed the course of human history when you were 12 years old? Anyone? Uh, when you were a preteen, did you do anything earth-shattering? No? So when you were 12 years old, go ahead and think back. For some of you, that may have been 10 years ago. For others of you, maybe 100. Uh, but you think back. Think back to when you were 12. Did you come up with a solution to world peace? Did you save anyone's life? Did someone give you the Nobel Peace Prize? Anyone? This last week I was thinking back to when I was 12 years old. And when I was 12 years old, I was just a few months into my 7th grade year. And so I was thinking about my 7th grade year, thinking about my junior high years, and asking myself, did you do anything particularly impressive? And I came up with the answer, not really. You know, grade-wise, in seventh grade, I made A's and B's, but so what? So did a bunch of other kids. When I was in seventh grade, I was playing AYSO soccer. Big deal. Thousands of other kids across the country were playing AYSO soccer. When I liked a girl, I would act particularly annoying around her. But so does just about every other seventh grade boy out there. And so I was thinking of my seventh grade year, I didn't do anything particularly impressive. And then I was thinking about the heroes of our faith in Scripture. Did they do anything earth shattering when they were 12 years old? And we look at the heroes of our faith, and if you want to do a Bible study that's really rather short, look at the childhood years of the heroes of our faith. Uh, Look at the childhood years of Noah. You know what you find? Nada. Nothing about Noah. He was a great man of faith when he was 500, but nothing about him as a kid. How about others like Abraham? Do we read anything about preteen Abraham? Not a thing. Nothing is said about preteen Abraham. You look at the heroes of the faith from Daniel to Paul to Peter, all of these guys, and just searching for something, some little tidbit of what they did as kids or preteens, and you only find a few scattered examples. You find a little bit about Joseph, when he was 17 years old, but that wasn't, you know, a kid age. You look at David, quite possibly he was a teenager uh, when he slew Goliath, but that's just a guess. He might have been a young man by then. We don't know for sure. We look at Samuel. Finally, we have an example of a hero of our faith where something is said about him as a kid. We know that Samuel was small and still a child when God spoke to him, and he answered, here am I. But other than Samuel, you don't find much of anything. But there is an exception to the rule. Jesus is an exception to the rule. If you look at Luke chapter 2, as we finish the chapter today, starting in verse 41, you'll see that God thought it was so important to share a little bit about Jesus' childhood that he preserved for us in the Gospel of Luke this wonderful account of what happened on a few days when Jesus was 12 years old. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41. It's a significant passage that most of you are familiar with, but I bet there's some things in this passage that you may have missed 
as you've read or studied it in the past. So we're in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41, as we look at some close encounters with the preteen Jesus. Say amen if you're there in Luke 2, verse 41. We're going to read it in a moment together, but would you pray with me first? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for the privilege of studying your word. We thank you for the, the privilege of being able to hold a copy of your word in our hands, Lord. As we are studying it this morning, there are millions of Christians around the world who have to be in underground churches, hiding from the authorities, not given the privilege to study your word in the open. We thank you that you give us this privilege. And Lord, may we not take it for granted. May we not abuse it, O oh God. Uh, may we not tune out, but may we tune in to what you have to teach us today through your word. And all God's people said, Amen. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. And after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they did find him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and at his answers. As we studied together verses 21 through 40 last week, last Sunday, we, we saw plenty of evidence that Jesus was Jewish through and through. His parents were Jewish and they did everything according to the Old Testament law that they were supposed to do within the first 40 days of their baby boy's life. When Jesus was eight days old, just like they were supposed to do, Mary and Joseph made sure that he was circumcised there on the eighth day. Also on the eighth day, they gave Jesus officially his name, as had become the tradition in recent centuries for Jewish parents, not only to circumcise their boy on the eighth day, but officially name him on the eighth day. On the fortieth day, just like the law of Moses had prescribed, Mary and Joseph did three things that every Jewish parent was supposed to do. First of all, they officially dedicated Jesus. They gave the five-shekel coin to the temple saying, we are, in a sense, redeeming this child. We know this child is God's, and we're, in a sense, kind of buying the child back. Uh, he is on loan from God for us to raise, and, and we're going to signify that dedication by giving that five-shekel coin to the temple. Also, Mary, according to the law, purified herself of her, of her uncleanness. They offered two sacrifices, two pigeons or two doves, just like they were supposed to do according to the law of Moses. And so they did everything they were supposed to do as true blue Jew parents, just like they were supposed to do according to the Old Testament law and even according to the traditions of the Jewish people. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. Jesus was, without a doubt, raised in a strict, law-abiding Jewish family. And as we look at verse 41 here, we find yet again some evidence that Jesus' parents made sure they did things according to the letter of the law. And so here we find in verse 41, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. In ancient Judaism, there were three great feasts that were celebrated in Jerusalem each year. 
And Jewish people, especially the Jewish men, were supposed to attend all of these three feasts. The first of those feasts was the Feast of Passover, uh, followed by the Feast of Pentecost, and then a little bit later in the year, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jewish men were supposed to travel to Jerusalem three times a year to try to attend these three feasts. But what happened as the centuries went by is uh, that population of Jews spread out further and further and further from Jerusalem. So it got to a point by Jesus' day that the Jewish authorities said, if you live more than 15 miles from Jerusalem, you don't have to attend in person all three feasts. Do your best to attend if you can, but if you live more than 15 miles, do your very best at least to attend the most important of those three feasts, which was the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Passover. And so Mary and Joseph there in Nazareth lived some 80 miles from Jerusalem, but it seems very clear from verse one, every, verse 41, every year they went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. Just like every other good Jewish man, Joseph traveled to Jerusalem each year for the Feast of Passover, but notice he didn't travel alone. According to Jewish law, the wife and the kids were not required to attend that feast with dad. Only the men were required to attend. But it seems like Mary and Joseph went above and beyond. Mary attended with him and presumably they brought the kids with him. We don't know for sure, but on this particular occasion, at least, they brought Jesus with them. Now, all you've probably heard the term bar mitzvah before, right? Bar mitzvah. What is bar mitzvah? Most of us as non-Jews would say a bar mitzvah is a party, right? A coming-of-age party. Actually, more technically speaking, a bar mitzvah is not a party at all. Bar mitzvah is... The person. Bar mitzvah is Hebrew for son of the covenant. So if you talk to a Jewish person that still celebrates bar mitzvah today, what they're celebrating is the young man, not the occasion. Bar mitzvah means son of the covenant. And so according to Jewish tradition, a Jewish boy becomes a man when he turns 13 years old. So at the age of 13, young Jewish men begin assuming the rights and responsibilities of adulthood. They are fully responsible for knowing and following the law of Moses. So beginning at age 13, Jesus would have been responsible for attending Passover. He would have been responsible for worshiping God in his local synagogue, for fasting on the Day of Atonement and carrying out all the other religious duties that a 13-year-old man, Bar Mitzvah, was supposed to carry out. And so here's what we know historically took place in the years leading up to a young man turning 13. We know historically, by the time Jesus comes onto the scene, the Jews began to establish some traditions where a father would begin grooming his son when he was 11 or 12 for bar mitzvah. He didn't want him to turn 13, and all of a sudden he has to obey all the laws, and he's had no practice. And so we know that many Jewish dads in Joseph's day, when their son was 11, two years away, from turning 13, he would start to groom him on what an adult Jewish male would do on the Day of Atonement. Because on the Day of Atonement, every Jewish man was supposed to fast all day, right? And so when his son was 11, many Jewish dads would have their son fast until noon. So he'd get a small taste of fasting all day. 
Then the next year when his son was 12, he would have his son fast all day long on the Day of Atonement. So by the time he's 13 and it's legally required that he fast the entire day, he's ready to go. And so we know that Jewish men were doing this with their sons, preparing them for bar mitzvah. And so Jesus here in chapter 2 is 12 years old. So in all likelihood, Joseph had been grooming Jesus. We don't know for sure if this was Jesus' first time uh, going to Passover or his 12th. But this year we can be pretty confident that Joseph had Jesus under his wing because the next time he would be basically on his own when he was 13 coming back the following year. And so he has Jesus most likely under his wing. In a year he's going to be a full-fledged bar mitzvah, a son of the covenant. And regardless of whether or not this was his first or his 12th Passover, Joseph was exposing his adopted son to more of the Passover ceremonies than ever before in preparation for his coming of age. In just one year, Jesus would have to stand on his own two feet. So like any good Jewish father, Joseph must have felt on his shoulders the heavy responsibility of grooming his boy for adulthood. There's no reason to doubt that Joseph carried out his duty well Uh, during the full eight days of the the Passover feast. There's no reason to doubt that he did a great job. He was a loving father. He poured what he knew into his son, even though that was a difficult task, uh, raising Jesus as the creator of the universe, the son of God. Joseph did his best to teach his son what he knew. And after eight days, Joseph and Mary were probably low on money. Remember, they were poor. Joseph was a carpenter, but he didn't make a killing in that profession. After eight days, Joseph and Mary are low on money, and the trip back to Nazareth would take them at best three full days. So they didn't dilly-dally, joining a caravan and beginning their long road trip back. Notice what it says in verse 33 and, uh, excuse me, verse 43 and 44. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but Joseph and Mary were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and their friends. Now, when we read these verses from our 21st century perspective, we can't help but think that Mary and Joseph were a little negligent, don't you think? Come on. You're in a strange town. You don't know people in that strange town. You've got a 12-year-old boy with you, and you... Get in your caravan and start heading home and seriously you don't realize your son is missing until the end of the day? What gives? Now, before you call CPS on Mary and Joseph, let me just explain a few things of how it worked in those days. So, first of all, it's important to keep in mind that 12 years old in Jesus' day is not 12 years old in our day. A 12-year-old, once again, was a year away from being declared a man in the eyes of the Jewish law. Now, when he was 13 years old, that doesn't mean dad gave him the boot and said, go out and fend for yourself and sign a mortgage next week. You know, he was still under his dad and mom's roof, and he would still be under their authority to a large extent. But he was much more independent at the age of 13 than our 13-year-olds would be today. Sometimes we don't allow our 13-year-olds to go next door. In those days... They were closer to independence than 12- and 13-year-olds are today. But the even more important thing, the second thing to keep in mind, is that caravans 
worked differently in those days as they work today. Here's how caravans, and I didn't realize this until I was studying for this message last week. In those days, caravans worked like this. The ladies, the moms, always had the kids with them. The small children were always with the ladies. And so the ladies would leave early in the morning, and they would be at the front of the caravan with the kids, and the men would follow along at the back of the caravan, sometimes a couple hours later, because the men didn't have the kids in tow, and so their pace was a lot faster than the ladies and the kids. And so what happened would that ladies would leave early in the morning with the kids. A little while later, the men would follow behind. And by nighttime, they were going at about the same pace. They would meet at the campsite. They would drive down stakes, have dinner together, and spend the night and repeat it the next day. And so what most likely happened was Mary starts off with the ladies and the kids. And by this time, Jesus is 12 years old. Remember, we read later in the Gospels that Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. And so by this time, Jesus is 12, Mary and Joseph had already had more of their own kids by now. And so Mary has the smaller kids, Jesus' younger half-brothers and half-sisters. She has them in tow. She leaves early. And she assumes that Jesus is with Joseph because what's Joseph been doing for the last eight days? He's been grooming Jesus for his bar mitzvah, for when he's on his own two feet the following year. And so Mary leaves in the morning, assuming 12-year-old Jesus is with Joseph. Joseph heads out with the guys maybe a couple hours later, and he assumes since all his other kids are with Mary, Jesus is with Mary too. And so they take off, and they're with their respective groups, and they converge at dinner that night around the campsite. And I can kind of imagine how the scene went down. Joseph sits down on the mat around the campfire. Mary's prepared the nice meal. All their other kids are around the campfire, and Mary asked the question, uh, Joseph, where's Jesus? And Joseph responds, beats me. You've seen him more recently than I have. Uh, Joseph, wasn't Jesus with you today? And it's probably about this point the light bulb goes off in Joseph's head, and he thinks to himself, "Uh uh-oh. If we brought the doghouse on this trip, I'm probably in it. Uh, no, Mary, I assumed he was with you. Every other year we've come to the Passover, Jesus has been with you. Joseph, this isn't every other year. You know what's happening over the next 12 months. He's been with you all week. He hasn't been with you today. No, he hasn't. They drop their meals and they begin frantically looking through the camp like any loving parents would do. They're asking their friends. They're asking their neighbors that were in that caravan. They're asking extended family. And they go through that caravan. And by the time they've gone through that caravan completely backwards and forwards, they come to that heart-wrenching conclusion. We left our son in Jerusalem and he doesn't know anybody. And so what do they do? At daylight, they head back to Jerusalem. Now, notice what we read in verse 45. They went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And we read in verse 46 that they found Jesus after three days. So here's how those three days worked. Day number one, they were on their way back to Nazareth. Oops, we don't have Jesus with us. At the end of day one, they realized that. Day two, they have to travel the full day trip back to Jerusalem. 
And so day two, at the end of the day, they're back in Jerusalem. Day three, once it's daylight again, they're looking frantically for Jesus. And at some point during that third day, they find him there at the temple. Verses 46 and 47. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was, what's the word? Amazed. What are some of the other words in other translations? Any other words used there? Astonished? Any others? They were amazed. They were astonished at his understanding and his answers. Isn't that something? Mary and Joseph didn't find Jesus in the street kicking the ball with the other boys his age. They didn't find him panhandling from some uh, vendor that was selling bread because after a few days Jesus was awfully hungry. Uh, They didn't find him complaining or whining, which honestly which is what most 12-year-olds would have been doing if mom and dad had forgotten them three days earlier. He's not whining. He's not complaining. He's not griping that his mom and dad left and forgot all about him two and a half days earlier. What Jesus was doing was sitting among the great Jewish rabbis, notice the words, listening to them, asking them questions, and even, number three, answering their questions. That's pretty remarkable. Luke says that the religious leaders were amazed at Jesus' understanding and his answers. The Greek word Luke uses here is a, a very strong word that even kind of goes beyond that word amazed in the English language. Uh, we could translate it as they were blown away or they were beside themselves. These guys could not believe their ears. Jerusalem's best and brightest rabbis were blown away by Jesus' understanding of Scripture and theology. They knew they were in the presence of some sort of child savant, some sort of theological and biblical child genius. They were completely blown away. His spiritual understanding was well beyond his years. It would be kind of like this. Imagine a seventh grader and you walk into the room and all the other seventh graders are either shooting hoops or trying to pretend like they've got some game with the ladies and everybody's shaking their heads saying, no, you got no game. You don't got no game on the court. You got no game with the ladies. They think you're a goofball. That's what most 12-year-olds are like, but it would be like you walk into a room and that 12-year-old is sitting down talking to a Ph.D. geneticist about DNA sequencing. Imagine walking into the room and you've got a 12-year-old boy waxing eloquent with a linguist about Chinese, particularly Mandarin, and also Japanese and ancient Mongolian. Imagine sitting down and you've got this 12-year-old sitting with a PhD rocket scientist talking about quasars and pulsars and all that other stuff we've never heard of. Imagine that. We'd just be blown away. This kid's intellect and his understanding is beyond his years. We would come to the conclusion, this is no ordinary kid. And that's certainly the conclusion those rabbis came to. This is no ordinary kid. So, These rabbis are blown away as they hear Jesus talking and asking questions and answering questions. Were Mary and Joseph equally impressed with what was coming out of Jesus' mouth? Not exactly. 
They had other things on their mind. Look at verse 48 here in Luke chapter 2. What is, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, and I'm going to try to read this with the tone of voice she must have had when she was saying this to Jesus. Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Mary was not a happy camper. Mary was pretty frustrated with Jesus. She was astonished, not so much at how eloquently he was speaking, but astonished by the fact that here he is sitting in the temple courts, talking to those rabbis as if he hadn't been separated from his parents at all. She's listening to him, and he doesn't have anything in his tone of voice that makes him look a bit worried about not having been with his family for two and a half days. He doesn't look worried. He doesn't seem at all scared to be alone. And he didn't seem to have any regrets that he hadn't joined the caravan more than 48 hours earlier. And so she's astonished. She's blown away. Mary and Joseph are blown away in a different way than the rabbis were blown away. To say it differently, they felt more than a little bit put out with Jesus. And Mary knew that Jesus had it coming to him. He was going to get a piece of her mind. And so she says once again, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, Mary and Joseph were astonished when they saw Jesus in the temple courts and heard him teaching the teachers. But they were even more astonished when Jesus replied to Mary in verses 49 and 50. Notice again what Jesus says in verses 49 and 50. Jesus asks, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But Mary and Joseph did not understand what he was saying to them. You see, it wasn't just a matter of of Jesus being some sort of child savant. It wasn't just a matter of him being some sort of childhood genius. He, He was genius for sure, but simple genius would have been easier to deal with. What Mary and Joseph couldn't wrap their minds around was the reality that their boy was not their son. He was God's son. And they couldn't wrap their minds around it from Mary's perspective. Notice what she says. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. She knew full well what Gabriel had said to her 12 years and 9 months earlier. She knew full well that Gabriel had told her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her. And even as a virgin, she would give birth to a son. And he was not going to be a normal, ordinary son. She knew full well that when she had given birth to Jesus in Bethlehem, that she was still a virgin when she gave birth. She knew full well that he was no ordinary son, but as she considered Joseph in the situation, her frame of mind was, Joseph is all Jesus has got as a dad. He's all he has. He's the only dad that Jesus has ever known. And so she says, your father and I have been anxiously searching for her, for you. From her perspective, Joseph was the only father that Jesus had. But Jesus respectfully responded that his true father was God Almighty. And Jesus wasn't on his way home to Nazareth because he was already at home. 
with his heavenly Father in the house of the Lord. From Jesus' perspective, he must be in his Father's house. Something I'd never really thought of before, Warren Wearsby points out in his commentary, that Jesus oftentimes in the gospel uses the word must, referring to his mission. A few examples, as Wearsby has this wonderful quote here, he writes, The word must was often on our Lord's lips. Jesus said, I must preach in Luke 4.43. Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer in Luke 9.22. He said, the Son of Man must be lifted up in John 3.14. Even at the age of 12, Jesus was moved by a divine compulsion to do the Father's will. I must be in my Father's house. Or as some translations put it, I must be doing my Father's business. Now, it seems clear that when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself of most of his knowledge. Jesus was not all-knowing at the age of two, was he? It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that the creator of the universe had to learn things when he was here on earth. But that's why Paul took the time in Philippians chapter 2 to say Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself. Part of what he emptied himself was that knowledge of every single detail and fact in the universe. Something else he emptied himself of of was his power. And so these old wives' tales are notions that are oftentimes peddled in the Catholic Church that Jesus as a child was lifting boulders and saving people's lives. There's no evidence of that in Scripture. There's no evidence that Jesus could perform a single miracle until after his baptism the Holy Spirit comes upon him. It's at that point he's anointed to do the work of miracle ministry. And so he wasn't all knowing. He wasn't all powerful. He also wasn't all present. Unlike the eternal son of God who he uh, he was when he preexisted before coming down as Jesus, he could not be in all places at one time. Jesus limited his, his knowledge. He limited his power. He limited his ability to be in different places at the same time. And so this interesting reality is unfolding here. One of the reasons I believe this was placed in Scripture, Jesus at the age of 12 in this episode at the temple, was to let us know that Jesus' parents could not fully wrap their minds around the reality that their boy was the Son of God. And they couldn't wrap their understanding around that. But Jesus, at the age of 12, seems to have become, for the very first time, self-aware of who he was. At some point around this age of 12, Jesus realizes who he is and what he was sent to earth to do. He realizes that he is the very Son of God and that God Almighty, the Father in heaven, is his true one and only Father. Jesus understood these realities at the age of 12, but for Mary and Joseph, that would take quite a while longer for them to grasp. Verses 51 and 52. Then Jesus went down to Nazareth with Mary and Joseph. And I love these verses. He was obedient to them. He was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with men. If any 12-year-old boy was ever smart enough or spiritually mature enough and experienced enough to call the shots in his own home, 
That young man was Jesus. If there was ever a 12-year-old that should be given the opportunity to rule his parents, to lead them, to call the shots, it would have been Jesus. But notice what it says of Jesus in verse 51. He went home with them and was obedient to them. You see, Jesus modeled for every other preteen who has ever lived what God expects of kids and teenagers. Jesus submitted to Mary and Joseph's authority. He humbly obeyed them, and then he grew up physically and socially and spiritually. All of our kids and teens would do well to heed Jesus' example. If Jesus did it, certainly you should do it. Two lessons I don't want you to miss in closing. Lesson number one, this is so important, not just for kids and preteens and teens, it's important for all of us. Lesson number one, if you've closed your ears to the truth, do what Jesus did. Sit, listen, learn, and obey. Isn't that a marvelous thing to think about? The creator of the universe, who before he was placed on this earth, knew every single fact there was to learn, past, present, and future. He empties himself of his knowledge, and at the age of 12, he's sitting down with those rabbis, actually learning from them. Does that just blow your mind? Because it blows my mind. The creator of the universe, the all-knowing Son of God, is learning something, sitting at the rabbi's feet. That's an incredible thought. Why did Jesus do this? In part, he did it as an example for you and me. How many of you have been Christians for more than 10 years? 20? 30? 50? 100? Anyone? 100? A lot of us in this room have been Christians. (laughs) Marley likes that. (laughs) A lot of us have been Christians for a long time. Okay, time to be honest with each other. How many of you have noticed that Christians can be some of the worst listeners on the planet. How many of you have noticed that Christians can be some of the most stubborn people on the planet? It's true if you haven't realized this. Christians sometimes are terrible listeners. Sometimes, what? Say that again. One of my favorite things is when someone comes up and says, you know, Dane, uh, this is kind of mean, forgive me, but they come up and say, Dane, I've got ADHD. And I say, excuse me, I didn't quite catch that. Think about that. It'll come to you in a moment. But anyway, sometimes we're terrible listeners. Sometimes we're terrible. Sometimes we're so stubborn we don't want to budge. And and Jesus sets us this beautiful example. He sits, even though he had created these rabbis, because he is the creator, right? He created these rabbis in their mother's wombs. The creator of the universe is sitting down, listening and learning. And if Jesus sits down and listens and learns... We should do the same. I like to visit other churches when I'm off for a Sunday, and I like to expose myself to other pastors' teachings. And it was kind of a kick, I thought, to visit that Lutheran church even when we were on that youth mission trip and uh, scared some of our teens half to death when they had to get up and go through all this formality up front at the kneeling bench. But when all is said and done, I like visiting other churches. And I go to a church like that, and I'm listening to the message. And I know full well they don't dig as deep as we do here. But I tell you, whenever I visit another church or if I'm listening to a message on the radio, even if it's a pastor I'm not too crazy about, I can always learn something. 
And I have to be very careful because I've studied this stuff. Oftentimes I'm listening to a sermon and I've preached that same passage. I've preached that same sermon. Sometimes I'm listening to it and says, well, I wouldn't have said it that way. The way I said it was a lot better when I preached that sermon. But I've got to catch myself because I can learn something from that pastor. I can sit in on a Sunday school class, someone teaching, it's a complete rookie, and I can learn something from that teacher teaching that passage of Scripture. We have to do like Jesus. We have to sit and listen and learn. And as God says, here are your marching orders. We have to walk in obedience, just like Jesus, just like Jesus. Even Jesus wasn't a know-it-all when he walked this earth. He sat and he listened, he learned, and he submitted to the authorities God had placed in his life. So too should we. Lesson number two. If you've forgotten about Jesus, it's not enough to feel sorry about it. Do what Mary and Joseph did. Turn around and go get him. Mary and Joseph could have sat at that campsite and said, Well, you know, we really blew it that time. Well, you know, he's, he's going to be 13 in a few months anyway. He'll be fine. He'll be able to fend for himself. We've got all these other kids, so we need to take care of them. No, they didn't do that, did they? Hold on just a moment before you put your Bibles and notes away, because this is important. Mary and Joseph did something very significant that we would rarely pay attention to, because it's just a given. When you are a parent and you lose a child, you turn around and try to find that child as soon as you can. I've had some terrible moments as a parent where I forgot my child and had to go back and find him. It was so embarrassing back when Rachel was our secretary here. Uh, Kayla, my oldest, was in kindergarten. Christine had told me to pick her up at the end of the school day, and I got involved in some work in the office here. I completely forgot about my own daughter. I get a message from Christine. The office called. You forgot Kayla. And I said a few words under my breath that the secretary couldn't hear, and I ran out the door and <laughs> I zipped over to that school as, as, as quickly as I could. And I'll never forget that look. Hey, I've got to pay you like a couple bucks for this later, Kayla. I'll, ne- I'll never forget walking into the office, and they had the large counter here, and then the parents would stand as they came in the door. And the large counter, and I looked back past the counter to the back of that office, and sitting in a chair against that back wall, was my little red-haired girl with the most disappointed look on her face. Her daddy had forgotten her. We have those moments sometimes as parents, and it's second nature. We're going to go find our child as soon as we realized, oops, I was an idiot. We go and find our child. But don't miss this powerful lesson here. When it comes to Jesus, do you know how many people will fall away from the Lord and turn their back on Jesus, and they'll sulk, and they'll sulk, and they'll sulk, and they don't make that critical step to turn around and go get him again. And sometimes you'll hear someone say, you know what, I turned my back on him. He could never forgive me. That's not true. He can and he will forgive you. You know, it's too late for me. That's not true. It's not too late for you. And so don't just sit around feeling sorry for yourself. Sitting around feeling sorry for yourself accomplishes absolutely nothing. You have to do what Mary and Joseph did when you realize that you goofed up. When you come to your senses and realize you left Jesus in the dust, you put him on the back burner. You've got to be like them. You've got to turn around and repent and go back to Jesus. 
because he's waiting for you. When you turn around and go back to Jesus, he says so beautifully in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Most of us stop reading there. We don't read verses 12 and 13, but 12 and 13 are just as important as God goes on to say, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. And then he says in verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Revelation 2, 4 that wonderful uh, passage is Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus. He says to the Ephesians, you have forgotten and forsaken your first love. So you need to do three things. You need to remember your first love. You need to repent of your sin. And you need to resume doing the things that you used to do. So if you are here today and you realize you have left Jesus in the dust, you put him on the back burner. Stop your sulking and start your repenting. Stop your pity party and start your following Jesus party. It's time to go back to Jesus and pick up where you left off and follow him with all your heart because Jesus has promised you that you will seek him and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart. He has made that a promise in his word for the people of Israel and he's made it a promise for you as well. You seek him with all your heart and he will be found by you. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And Lord, as we dive into his life and we, as we dig a little deeper in these verses than we've dug before, Lord, we're blown away by this notion that Jesus could learn something while he was here on earth. We're blown away by this notion that he submitted to his parents, even though he was more capable of leading that family than they were. Lord, we're amazed by you, Lord Jesus. We're amazed by you. And I pray, O oh God, that if any of us here have been pushing you aside or putting you on that back burner, Lord, that today would be the day that we turn back to you, that we would put you back in the driver's seat of our lives. Lord, not having you ride shotgun, you have no interest in riding shotgun. You want to be in the driver's seat. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would do that today. Lord, if anyone has never made that decision for Christ, I pray they would in these next few moments. If anyone needs to rededicate their lives to you, I pray that they would in these next few moments. If anyone needs to come and kneel at these steps and just spend some one-on-one -on -one time with you, I pray that they would do so in these next few moments. Or if anyone is going through some stuff and just needs prayer, I pray that they would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've got some prayer counselors and decision counselors coming to the front and Skip in the back of the room today. You come to the front or come to the back if you need someone to pray with you. Or if you have a decision to make for Christ. Or as I mentioned, if you'd like to be at the steps just praying, just you and the Lord. You come as we stand together right now for a song of invitation. Please stand.